You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. This is part two of the debate, and it will involve rebuttals. We'll have a pre-wrath rebuttal, then a pre-trib rebuttal, and the first set of rebuttals will take place for 15 minutes, so 15 and 15. Then we'll have a second set of 12 minutes, again, pre-wrath and pre-trib rebuttal, and then finally 10 minutes of pre-wrath and pre-trib rebuttal. Then we'll take another break before our final time of cross-examination and closing statements. But let's begin with the pre-wrath Rebuttal. Okay, uh, thank you for the, your opening remarks, Dr. Ice. Uh, so, Dr. Ice uh, made a, a lot of uh, assertions uh, with pre-tribulationism. Uh, actually, there were, there were some statements about the rapture in general that I would agree with them. Uh, but there were there were a couple uh, statements that. Uh, I, I want to respond to actually particularly one major statement. And in my 15 minutes here, I, I want to actually spend this 15 minutes to respond to it because it is absolutely fundamental to the whole pre-tribulational theological interpretation. It's, in fact, it's, a, in my view, a, a deeply seated presupposition. And uh, Dr. I spent a, a little bit of time on it, not a lot of time, but he did spend some time on it. And that is... And th- th- this is uh, uh, in a great amount of pre-trib literature. What you see is that what they will make this comparison chart. Over here is rapture passages. Over here are second coming passages. In rapture passages, you know, Christ comes for his church. Second coming passages, Christ comes, you know, uh, with his church. Uh, in the air, on the earth. Now, uh and I, I, I'm actually uh, glad that Dr. Ice brought this up because I, it gives me an opportunity to uh, respond to it in a substantive manner. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, I, want to, I actually want to point out three flaws in this argument. Uh, first of all, it is highly selective with the evidence, with the biblical evidence, and it's circular in nature. Uh, it begins with a preconceived conclusion, and then... They fit the evidence for that conclusion. For example, in their system of interpretation, they begin with the preconceived conclusion that if a passage contains a sign or something intervening event before Jesus is coming, oh, well, you know, that passage, that, that can't refer to a rapture passage, so they automatically relegate that to, that must be referring to the quote-unquote second coming passage. Uh, this is classic circular reasoning. Uh, in essence, the way they reason is not just that there is no evidence of a passage or a sign, uh, or no evidence of a passage with a sign before the rapture, but in their view, there cannot be evidence. And that's problematic. Uh, For example, this type of fallacious reasoning, it's tantamount. Uh, When we hear, for example, uh, I hear this from uh, this type of reasoning from atheists refusing to accept, for example, you might have heard of this type of reasoning where they say they would not except the evidence of the supernatural. Well, right? That's, that's uh, tantamount, again, to when you don't enter, if you don't allow for evidence, what does that say? It's selective evidence. And I believe this is the type of evidence, the type of reasoning that uh, Dr. Ice and other pre-tribulationists make. So, in other words, the, the pre-trib criteria would not allow any evidence against their position because they have, a, again, a preconceived definition of what the evidence can only allow for their conclusion. Uh, and, and this is why they can't have the coming in Matthew twenty-four thirty-one refer to the rapture because there are signs that signal this coming, especially the, the Antichrist Great Tribulation. Well, you have a sign... You know, the Christ's glory, you have the great tribulation, these are events, these are signs before the coming in Matthew 24. That can't be the rapture. That has to be a second coming. Uh, so, but this, this type of selective evidence, it does not reflect the biblical reality. So, this is my first point, is that they argue in a circular 
fashion. My second point is that they, mis- they, they uh, have a, a fundamental mis- mistaken idea of disconnecting the rapture from the second coming of Christ. Now, to be clear, the rapture is not the second coming. I don't, pre-wrath does not believe that the rapture is the second coming of Christ. That's the other extreme. Uh, post-tribulationists, many post-tribulationists, not all of them, but many post-tribulationists would identify the rapture event with the second coming. Uh, <clears throat> what I believe is that the, the rapture is part of the unified second coming of Christ. So let's, let's maybe define some terms here. We talk about coming. Uh, the... Uh, the term, or there's several terms, don't get me wrong here, but the term I want to highlight is the Greek term parousia. And parousia, it means an arrival and a continuing presence. This is a term that we use for the second coming uh, or the second advent. Uh, so, the, in other words, the, the Lord's second coming, it will be a comprehensive, unified whole. And it's not going to be some simple, you know, snap of the fingers, instantaneous event. Uh, no, the, the, the rapture, of course, uh, will be, or at least the, the uh, transformation of the bodies will happen in the twinkling of an eye. But the second coming is a comprehensive whole. Uh, and it's going to, the scope of it will include certain divine events uh, in that the, the Father is going to fulfill in the Son. I'd like to use an analogy of the first coming of Christ. Was this, uh, the first coming of Christ was a it was an arrival and a continuing presence. The, the the first coming of Christ began with the birth of Christ, and then there was a unified whole. Uh, the uh, Jesus, his his birth, his growing up, his ministry, death, burial, resurrection, teaching, all that, his ascension. All that was a comprehensive whole. Well, likewise, the second coming of Christ will be the same. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul actually uses this term parousia. He says, those who are left up to, up to until the coming of the, Christ, uh, of the Lord. And then, uh, and then he goes on, he talks about that. The rapture is going to happen. Uh, and um, Paul also uses the term parousia in his classic re- uh, resurrection passage in, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, <clears throat> But each in its own order, Christ, the first fruits. And then when he comes, that is the, the parousia, those who belong to him, of course, will be resurrected. And so, there, notice there's, uh, so this is one of the very first divine events of the second coming will be the rapture and the resurrection. And the second coming begins in the sky. It doesn't belong, it doesn't begin on the earth. This is a deep-seated assumption among many pre-tribulationists, all-millennialists, post-tribulationists. No, the second coming according, even Jesus uses the term parousia in Matthew 24, talking about uh, that when he comes on, his, on, on the clouds, right? And the, and the, uh, the angels uh, do the gathering. The second coming begins in the sky. And there's a comprehensive whole. Now, of course, eventually Christ is going to come on earth, eventually, at the, at the end of the seven-year period, he will bring Israel uh, back, to, uh, back to salvation. Uh, so there is, a, again, a comprehensive hole in the second coming of Christ, initiated with Christ in the clouds, rapture, resurrection, day of the Lord's judgment, bringing Israel back to righteousness. And, of course, the apex of the second coming of Christ is going to be when Jesus is ruling on this earth in the millennium. That is part of the whole comprehensive whole. So, so the, what pre-tribulations do, they disrupt this unity. Well, the, you have the rapture coming over here, the second, and then seven years later, then you have the second coming. It, I, I just see that as very strained um, reasoning. So, <clears throat> so this, this false dichotomy, so false dichotomy of, of, of rapture passages over here, second coming passages over here, again, it's, it's circular reasoning, and it misunderstands the meaning of the parousia. And therefore, they misunderstand the relationship between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. And this leads me to my third point. I want to respond uh, to at least a couple of these contrasts. You know, you, you just open up a pre-tribulational book, and you see this chart 
you know, rapture passages over here, second passage, uh, second coming passages over here. And I wish I had the time, but could go through each one and uh, respond to each one, but I don't have that time. So let me respond to a couple of them. Well, uh, the first one I want to respond to, actually, let me, I just want to note one uh, other analogy. Uh, it would be, be tantamount to me, what if I was to stand up here and I was, and as I was, I was to say, uh, okay, now we have, we, have the, uh, we have birth passages over here, and then we have other passages, uh, we have crucifixion pas- passages over here. Therefore, there's not one first coming of Christ. No, that would be absurd. It's a comprehensive whole. Uh, and just like, again, the first coming of Christ, the Father fulfilled divine purposes in the Son in one whole coming. And just like the second coming of Christ, he is going to do the same. But as I mentioned, I want to respond to a couple of these. Uh, and this is from uh, Dr. Thomas Ice has a, an article on his website called Why I Believe the Bible Teaches Rapture Before Tribulation. There's a, a whole chart there. And, of course, uh, just in his opening remarks, he, he also gave uh, a, uh, a comparison as well. But one of these is, and, and this is one of the most common, you know, at the rapture, Christ comes for his church. At the second coming, uh, Christ will come with his church. Uh, at Armageddon. Of course, I believe that when that I, I believe that at the Battle of Armageddon, and I do believe the church is involved in that. But that's not the beginning of the second coming of Christ. Um, another one is it's very similar to the first one here. It says he, he comes in the air at the rapture, and then he comes to earth at the second coming. And I, again, I've heard these two slogans many times, but it's it's fundamental fundamentally in air. Uh, <clears throat> now. The, uh, Dr. Ice, he, he assumes that the second coming begins at the end of the seven-year period with the Battle of Armageddon. I don't, you know, in, in, or eventually either or uh, touching on earth. Um, again, I'm not sure where they get their evidence. I believe it's assumed that the second coming begins at that point. But the problem with that... Uh, is again, the, the, don't get me wrong. The Battle of Armageddon is part of the Second Coming to Christ. It's just not the initiation or the onset of the Second Coming. And and uh, I believe the Second Coming begins with Christ coming on the clouds to resurrect and rapture His people. And in the Book of Revelation, where does that happen? That happens between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal, as I showed in my my opening. It is a, uh, that is when the second coming begins, which will be ensued by the day of the Lord's judgment, uh, with the battle of Armageddon at the end of the judgments uh, of the parousia. So the rapture, the rapture is, it's only one aspect. It's not disconnected from the second coming. It's an aspect, just like the birth of Christ was the arrival. Well, Christ is going to arrive at the second coming on the clouds and rapture the church. Uh, so it's a unity. There's a unity of the second coming of Christ. And it will be, uh, the, again, resurrection, rapture, one of the first purposes. So, more accurately, the pre-trib statement should be conceived as two polar events. Um, or should not be, they should, it should not be conceived as two polar events. Instead, it should be a unified whole. That is, at the second coming of Christ, he comes to resurrect, rapture his people in the air... He will judge the world. He will bring remnant, uh, bring salvation to remnant of Jews, and establish his physical kingdom. In other words, the second coming of Christ uh, is a comprehensive whole. Um, okay, I um, what, just maybe one other uh, parallel I want to mention. Sometimes you see, sometimes in their chart, they'll have only believers are affected at the rapture while the second coming affects all men. Uh, this is not the case. Uh, at the, uh, of course, at the second coming, it affects all men. That's because the, the rapture will initiate the second coming of Christ. But if you look at Second Thessalonians 1, there's a unity. There's back-to-back events. Deliverance, judgment. Deliverance, judgment. Dr. Ice believes that there's likely a, a gap between the rapture and the judgment of Christ. And you can't have that. Uh, let me just conclude by saying this. Here's the reason why they are forced to place a gap between the rapture and the second coming. It's because they, they cannot, they, the, the, the second coming passages, right, um, 
have signs in, and events before uh, the second coming. Well, one of the events is the Antichrist Great Tribulation. And they can't have that. Uh, if they did occur before the rapture, then that would undermine the pre-trib theological system. In fact, this is exactly what Dr. Ice has said in his article after his comparative chart. This is what he says. An interval or gap of time is needed between the rapture and the second coming in order to facilitate many events predicted in the Bible in a timely manner. You see, you see the circular nature of his statement? That is, a gap is needed, he says. It's needed to fit the presupposition, yes, because they can't have any events or signs before the rapture. I'm going to be responding to his opening comments. Uh, he, he said, we believe the Olivet Discourse is not applicable to the church. It is applicable, but it's given to uh, Jewish believers during the tribulation. Uh, he quoted Joel 2.30 uh, and Matthew, it's connection with Matthew 24.29, Matthew 24.29, Luke 21.25-28, Revelation 6.15-17, the sixth seal. I agree with all of his views, all those connectedness. The, the question is, does it refer to leading, events leading up to the second coming? Or the rapture. And we, of course, believe there are no signs leading up to the rapture. Therefore, these lead up to the second coming. And so I don't have any problems with a lot of the connections that he makes uh, at those points. Uh, I, so I agree with much of what, probably about 80% of what Alan said in his opening remarks. It's just the suppositions he drew from them. Uh, and notice how he never provided any arguments for the location of the rapture. He just said it occurs between the 6th and 7th. And, uh, but I'm the only one, supposedly, who, made, who has unwarranted assumptions. And uh, therefore, he uses circular reasoning as well. And he's given a lot of inform information but made no actual arguments, just statements about what he thinks here and there. Uh, for example, Matthew 24 speaks of the rapture and not the second coming. It's just a statement, but a debate is about arguments. And it's not true about the seal judgment thing. If you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, I'm using the New American Standard. I'm an old guy. And... You'll see in the first four seal judgments, which are also known as the harsh judgments, in 6.1 he says, And I saw the Lamb uh, broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, what does he say? Come! And then I looked, and behold, a white horse. In other words... So you have that statement come. You look down in verse 3. And when he broke, he being Christ, chapter 5 is all about who is worthy to open the, land, the scroll to take back planet Earth. And Christ is the only one worthy. And so he's the one breaking the seals. Thus, he's initiating these judgments from heaven. In fact, there is a theme between the earth dwellers mentioned 11 times in the book of Revelation and the heaven dwellers mentioned three times. And those who look to heaven where the will of God is coming out of and being implemented upon the earth dwellers. Uh, and that's why what comes out of heaven is more important than what, what occurs on earth. And it shows God's sovereignty that he's able to implement uh, against the earth dwellers whose focus is only on the earth. And so in verse 3 he says, And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then he talks about what happened. And then in verse 5, And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And so he talks about what the black horse judgment is. And then in verse 7, it says, And when he broke the fourth seal, Christ breaking the seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. 
Well, when you get to the fifth seal judgment, let's look at it in verse 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, there's no come there. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who were being slain because the word of God and because of the testimony which he had, which had uh, maintained. And so when you get to Revelation 6, uh, verses 15 and following, it says, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man had hid themselves in the caves and upon the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Follow us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I believe this is a theophany at this point where the heavens rolled back, as it says earlier, and people get to see that this is God's wrath that is happening to them. In other words, Gladys, is that El Nino? No, it's not El Nino, it's God. And it takes on a more serious dimension from here on out because everybody knows it's God versus Satan in the tribulation period. And look at verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come. And so this is an answer to the first four seals that say come, and and those are present indicatives, or present imperatives, rather. And here you have an aorist indicative, and it's got to be an aggressive aorist, that a constantive aorist, rather, that refers to the entire thing that's already happened. And grammarians have shown that when you have this kind of construction, it always refers to what happened in the past. So that you do have this as a summary statement uh, at the end of this series of judgments in which it is called the wrath of the Lamb. And it does not include the fifth one because that's something, the response of those, but God allowed it. You have later on in Revelation 13 where it says, If to death you are destined, to death you will go. If to life, then to life. So yes, uh, God often does things that lead to certain consequences. And I believe this is one of those uh, sovereign events where he opens all of these seals. But with with this particular grammatical construction, it shows, it links these with the wrath of God later. Also, at the end of chapter 9, if you look over there, that's the end of the trumpet judgments. You have a similar thing occurring. And you have an evaluation, just like you had here, the evaluation of the earth dwellers in Revelation 6 was they're not going to repent. They'd rather hunker down and take it. That is the wrath of God. And by the way, that's out of Isaiah 13 as well. And so you have after the six trumpet judgments that are occurring in Revelation, you have a summary statement there, an evaluation. In other words, it's kind of as if uh, God evaluates the bombing campaign, if you will. They didn't repent, so he's going to go into the next phase. The next phase is the trumpet judgments. And you see that here in verse 20 it says, And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and idols, etc. Verse 21, And they did not repent of their murderers. See, so the evaluation at the end of this series of judgments is no repentance. So God goes on to the next phase. Go to Revelation 16. And when you look at chapter 16, and starting in the third bowl, and here you have targeted judgments, uh, targeted munitions in the military. Well, this is targeted for only those who have the mark of the beast. And it says... uh, Actually, verse 8 and and verse 9, which is the fourth bowl judgment, it says, uh, And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who had the power over these plagues, and they did not repent 
so as to give him glory. Look at the fifth bowl judgment. Uh, verse 11, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. So it's very clear to me that if you're looking at the flow of the book of Revelation, it is calling those first uh, seal judgments, which is also coordinated with the events of Matthew 24. If you look at Matthew 24 and the order in which Christ talks about the beginning of birth pains in in verses 4 through 9, they're the same exact order of the seal judgments. And the first thing to look out for, the first seal is the uh, rider on a white horse, and Christ calls those false Christ. So that's the Antichrist. Uh, and so you see that the Antichrist shows up immediately at the beginning of the tribulation, uh, the 70th week of Daniel, and that these start at the beginning. And therefore, since Alan would agree that the church is promised uh, that we will not experience the wrath of God, you have actually scripture teaching that uh, the church will escape the wrath of God, which he agrees with. He agrees that those New Testament passages teach that. And so that's one of the 23 terms used in the Old Testament to describe the 70th week of Daniel. And instead of chopping it up, like Bob Gundry, I think, was started that in the 70s, and I think Robert Van Campen must have picked up on him on that, of chopping the 70th week of Daniel into segments and classifying them, uh, most people historically have seen these 23 terms uh, to describe the various characteristics of the 70th week of Daniel, you know, that are talked about in Scripture. And that's what the church has been promised to escape is the wrath of God. Why? As we saw in Revelation 3.10, because she has already been tested. Millions of Christians have died down through the ages. And that's why if we were to somehow go through the tribulation, anyone who teaches the Word of God in the Bible is going to prepare somebody to be mature, and a mature Christian can uh, live through the times of trouble today, and they will certainly be able to during that time, just as tribulation believers will as well. But instead, the New Testament tells us to look for Christ. We're supposed to be waiting for Christ. Do you realize how many uh, moral commands are attached to the idea of waiting? And so what we see, the pre-wrath reverses this command uh, we're supposed to be motivated by the fact that Christ could come at any moment. We're waiting for a son, and that leads to God. And he who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What manner of people ought we to be in all manners of godliness, et cetera? And, and they reverse it by saying we're not preparing people to go through the tribulation. I am not preparing people to go through the tribulation. I'm teaching the word of God and giving them the blessed hope and teaching them to, to live through the trials and tribulations that we're experiencing in the church age and and increasingly in America as well. So so much of what he says, I agree, but it applies to the second coming rather than the rapture. Okay, uh, Dr. Ice uh, made... A lot of statements there. I don't, in my 12 minutes, I can't respond to every single one, but I do want to highlight, uh, a couple at least, and that's, uh, elaborating more on the seals. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> I agree that the first seal is the Antichrist, but if you look at the, 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 the nature of the first seal, it, the Antichrist is in his unrevealed state, and I believe Dr. Ice would probably agree with that as well, uh, and I believe that happens. I, I, I would put the first three seals at the, uh, in the, first half of the seventh week of Daniel. Uh, but it will, of course, be the midpoint in which the Antichrist will be revealed. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I was trying to, I, I've heard this uh, grammatical argument before with the idea of the, you know, horsemen and the, the calm and the grammar and all the Greek. And I'm sorry, it's just, uh, it's just wrong. It's just reading way too much into the Greek there. 
Uh, <clears throat> in fact, uh, you know, I've heard a form of the argument goes, well, the, the seals are God's wrath because Jesus himself opens, uh, opens up the wrath uh, or opens up the seals. Uh, again, that's just uh, an assumption uh, that, um, like I mentioned in my, my opening, I gave a, I, I thought, a uh, consistent view in showing that the seals actually, they point to the onset of the day of the Lord's wrath, which will happen at the opening of the seventh seal. But let me just uh, mention here uh, this claim that Jesus opens up the seals, therefore it's God's wrath. Uh, how that is exactly, I, I mean, we're not told except maybe this grammatical argument that, again, it's just simply um, just assumed it's reading way too much into Greek. And uh, so, But it makes sense that Jesus does open up the seals because he is the only one worthy. What is the function of it? That's what we got to be asking. Why are the seals being opened up? Uh, because Jesus is the one only worthy to take back his kingdom from Satan. And Jesus' act of opening up the seals shows his control and sovereignty over the events of the earth, even the bad events. For example, um, when we examine the book of, of Job, we see that God gives Satan permission to test Job with harsh trials. But it wasn't God's wrath. God was testing Job's faithfulness. Well, If you examine the seals, this is God giving Satan permission uh, to, you know, these horsemen uh, to, uh, to wreak havoc on, on people. And it's, it's not because it is God's wrath in and of itself. But, of course, I believe that uh, the church... Is this is going to be a trial for the church. It's not the great tribulation. That's going to be, of course, more intense. The scope is going to be narrowed to God's people. But the first three and a half years is going to also be a time of trial. Um, So this this point in in Job, Job, you know, he affirms the sovereignty of God in light of evil. And so that's what we see. Jesus initiating the seals, shows his control over world events. It's a non sequitur to say, well, it's it. You know, God, Jesus opens up the seals, therefore they are God's wrath. No, the Lord oversees the seals because he is sovereign and is about to establish his kingdom on earth. Uh, this, is wh- this is why no one else can open up the seals. Now, I want to respond to another argument that he brought up in the issue of Revelation 6, uh, particularly Revelation 6, 17. I've heard this uh, a number of times, uh, th- this argument. Yeah, Revelation 6, 17, uh, you have... Uh, this, um, where it talks about uh, that, you know, uh, the, the wicked, the unrighteous, uh, they see the celestial disturbances, they're fleeing from, they're fleeing, right, from the celestial disturbances, and they say that, you know, this is the, the great day of, of his wrath, you know, and of course, who can stand, right? Who's able to stand? And pre-tribulationists often point out that, oh, look, it says, they're saying their wrath has come. Oh, that's past tense. Um, no. Excuse me? didn't say it was past tense. I'm sorry. Okay. But I was actually going to qualify my statement in a moment here. Uh, and that is that the, the heiress that you mentioned uh, refers to that you can't, uh, I mean, I understand some pre-tribulations will take that as a, you know, that's, it's, it's, uh, uh, happening at that moment or present tense. Nevertheless, here's the point. The heiress in Greek, uh, this is a term that's, is very abused. And, uh, I don't, you know, uh, a lot of pre-tribulationists will, will say that, uh, in other words, they'll read into the Greek tense to determine the timing. I come from the perspective in Greek linguistics, uh, that temporal reference is not encoded in Greek, in, in the Greek tenses. I know that's hard for us English uh, speakers because, you know, when we think of tense in English, we think of time. But in Greek, uh, it, it's different. And I understand there's traditional scholars who, who hold on to a more traditional view, but uh, there's an emerging view uh, today recognizing, no, wh- the way you determine time or the ki- and the ki- what's called the kind of action is you examine the context. You cannot look at the Greek tense and read a lot of this into it. Uh, and in other words, uh, with, there's a, 
I mentioned the aorist tense. We don't have that in English, but in the aorist, uh, this is a, a term when, when a, a user, a Greek user, wanted to use this term, they wanted to depict a, an action as a whole or an undifferentiated uh, process. And so it is the context that determines the temporal reference and the kind, and the kind of action. How is the action happening? Uh, and when we do that, well, what is the context? I pointed some of this out in my opening remarks, but I have to revisit this. The context, once again, is that it's the very, the very react, reaction uh, of uh, the wicked is that they are fleeing uh, this, I believe, it's impending wrath. They're recognizing that God's wrath is, is coming. Now, of course, they may think that is the wrath of God. This is the wicked saying that. Of course, formally, the wrath of God comes with the seventh seal. But notice, if the seals were all God's wrath, why are they fleeing now? Why didn't they flee at the first seal? Especially Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the day of the Lord will come with sudden destruction. Uh, so uh, why are the wicked fleeing now and not later? Because they know the wrath of God is coming. And so, and yeah, there is a, a, a theophany there. I agree with Dr. Ice. There's a theophany there. The, the wicked, they're not interpreting the celestial disturbances as some freakish natural event. No, they see that this is divine in origin. They know, they see, there's a, it's a supernatural event. They see uh, the Lamb. And they know that it is going to be God's collision course with humankind. Uh, and I mentioned Joel 2, 30. Uh, 30 and 31. Uh, again, Joe says, I believe this is a parallel passage uh, with the sixth seal. Joe says this is going to happen before the day of the Lord. Matthew 24, Luke 21. I mentioned that before. The fifth seal. The fifth seal points to, uh, uh, they, the, they recognize that the, the, the wrath of God is still coming. Now, uh, it's interesting that the very next verse, the very next verse after Revelation 6, 17, um, 6.17 says, Because the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to withstand? The very next verse, and there shouldn't be a chapter break here, it says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so no wind could blow on the earth, on the sea, or on the tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, who had the seal of the living God. He shouted out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given permission to damage the earth and the sea. It says, don't damage. In other words, don't damage yet. Well, why is that? Because there's going, to have, there's going to be two groups of people, first of all, have to be protected and delivered. And then you're going to have the wrath of God. Uh, so, so the pre-tribulation interpretation of Revelation 6.17, I think they read it way too much into the grammar. Uh, and I, I don't believe they'd have the context itself on uh, their side of interpretation. So, the... Um, so those, those are the two points I wanted to highlight as far as the seals uh, and mentioning about you know, why Jesus is uh, opening up the seals and why that's not a, a, a legitimate objection to the pre-wrath position. And the, my second response here is to uh, mention that Revelation 6.17, you can't read into the, the Aris uh, 10 stem uh, a certain you know, uh, temporal reference or what's called kind of action, and to get a little linguistically geeky here, the uh, German technical term is Achtensart. That's the kind of action, how the action happens. Only the context can explain and depict and inform us on that action. I was taught at Dallas Seminary that Eris does not refer to tense. It refers to kind of action. Is that right, Alan? Uh, no, Dal uh, Wallace takes a traditional... <laughs> Wallace was a classmate of mine at Dallas. Yeah, he, he, he believes temporal reference is encoded in the verb and right. kind of action. I said kind. Yes, that too. Right. That's what we were taught. It doesn't refer, does not refer to time. We were, that was drilled into us. Oh, yeah, right, it, right. No, I agree. I wasn't saying It, it that. comes from the context. It has to be in the indicative mood and all this kind of stuff. I never said that. I didn't, I didn't and, say okay, and notice that he has to go to other people's arguments. He didn't answer my argument uh, in this particular at this particular point. And my argument was that it is probably a consummative arist answering the reference to the ones. That's not based on Greek. 
even though I classified the type of heiress that does come from Greek. It's a contextual argument. Uh, you could understand that in English or whatever translation if you have a good translation. And so they're answering the, the statements of come that identify there, and those are identified with the initial judgment phases there. And uh, so he accuses me of circular reasoning, and yet his view has all kinds of similar uh, statements. I didn't, I couldn't, I don't even remember him making a particular proof from the text. It was all, well, this happens here, this happens there, this happens there as well. And uh, then he accuses me of making circular reasons. I made a lot of similar statements as well. But uh, I didn't hear one proof from a text where it taught, uh, for example, when the rapture is going to occur, etc. And I would argue that I, my classification of rapture passages is not circular. Obviously, 1 Thessalonians is a rapture passage. Wouldn't we agree? The word rapture is used there. Uh, he believes John 14 is a rapture passage. He believes 1 Corinthians 15 is a rapture passage. So if you just took those three passages that virtually everyone agrees is a rapture passage as your thing, and then compare them with the blood and guts that occur in all these clear other passages that I believe refer to the second coming. So when I refer to second coming, I understand that he equates the two. And is that not an assumption that he makes? Unproven? And that is, that's not circular reasoning because those are clear rapture passages. And then you have other passages that he believes are rapture passages, like First Thess 110. Uh, and uh, the Bible uses multiple terms, including the word parousia, to refer to the rapture. Uh, parousia doesn't always refer to Christ's second coming. I didn't say he said that. Uh, notice the difference in pronunciation. And uh, also... Uh, the fact that many, there's probably six or seven terms, in my opinion, that refer to the rapture, including the rapture, uh, the gathering together, epesunogoge, you know, a lot of different terms are used uh, to refer to that because it's each term, I believe, interpretive comment here, is providing a different dimension or aspect to the fact that Christ is going to Paralambano to receive us or take us to be with him. And uh, so you have those terms used to refer to both comings because both are comings. And uh, he says that, uh, he, that I believe in two comings and he doesn't. He only believes in one coming, but then he divides it into two phases. How is that different? Please tell me. I'm having a hard time. Even Bob Gundry who developed so-called dispensational post-tribulationalism, believes in a gap of, say, hours between the rapture and the second coming. In fact, you go back to the 1600s, that's all over Puritan writing, all the way back to Joseph Mead, 1627, who believed in what's what I call the pre-conflagration rapture view, that people were splitting the rapture and the second coming into two phases. Uh, but they weren't pre-wrath because the, see, what happened pre-trib precipitated all of these other rapture views. All modern v rapture views, including post-tribulational rapture views, are responses to pre-tribulationalism. And people say, well, I'm a historic premillennialist, uh, and uh, so I believe what the early church did. No, you don't. You, you do not believe what the early You do in some ways, but so do dispensationalists or people like me. I believe some of the things the early church did, but your system is different, you see. And everything is a response to pre-tribulationalism. And so uh, analogies and illustrations are not proof. He had a lot of analogies. So this is like arguing to an atheist. Well, I happen to be Van Tillian in my apologetics. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue 
that rationalist, uh, semi-rationalist approach that you referred to, the atheist. Because ultimately, every, uh, we're dependent on revelation, pre- presuppositions, and biblical Christianity is based on thus saith the Lord, revelation. And you have to start with that. You don't start with some so-called common, rational, common ground, so you don't use those kind of arguments, in my opinion, dealing with unbelievers. Uh, Uh, I, I believe that the campaign of Armageddon, if you look at our chart book and other places, has eight phases to the campaign of Armageddon that c- culminate in the second coming of Christ that's talked about. I believe uh, that Christ first returns, according to Isaiah 63, 1-3, to Basra to rescue the Jewish people who are in Basra, which is probably Petra because Basra was a small village. Uh, where Petra later built uh, that place, and God is supernaturally protecting them there. So there are these phases. He wants to put them after Christ returns instead of, I see them better fitting into the buildup leading to his rescue because the rescue, the second coming is a rescue of the Jewish people event that they would have, they would have been wiped out if that were not so. Also, when you look at Matthew 24, 29, I'm sorry, 31, it says, and he will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds of the sky from one end to the other. That's a direct quote. Part of that is a direct quote uh, out of Daniel 12, 1. And in Daniel 12, 1, it says that everyone, he's talking clearly about Jewish people, Michael there, Everyone whose name is found written in the book will be rescued. And so Christ incorporates that statement from Daniel 12.1 into Matthew 24.31. And uh, we call these circumlocutions in grammar where you use a lot of words. If you want to read a lot of circumlocutions, read the Puritans. What you, what we could say in two words, they say in 15. And, uh, Christ, uh, so Daniel says, everyone whose name is found written in the book, Christ simply shortens it to the single term, the elect. And it's in the context of Israel being regathered. And this is not the rapture of the church. And there, that is contextual evidence from the Old Testament that that same comment is made in the context of Israel being rescued uh, at, in the last days. And you have all of these comments that are quoted from the Old Testament, like, Joel, uh, chapter three, that is in Matthew twenty four twenty nine, which leads up to the second coming, and you have that description of Christ's return to rescue the Jewish people there in the book of Joel, and so he's talking about the sun will be turned into darkness, moon into light before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and so when you look at the rapture passages, and if we, I guess if I was Donald Trump and you were someone else, we could negotiate a really good uh, view of what passages refer to the rapture. And, and we could sit down and negotiate. By the way, in 1994, when I first became director of Preacher of Research Center, I could not find a list of rapture passages on the one side and second coming. As far as I know, uh, in my writings, I was the first guy to do that. So most of your writings must have been after 1994, uh, but it's not a widely done thing in pre-tribulationalism necessarily. And uh, I couldn't find, at least I couldn't find one. Maybe there are some, but there is clear difference between those in the context. And the passages that talk about the rapture are in the context of New Testament epistles, you see, of clear rapture passages that we could start with, ones that we agree on, and then compare them with these other passages, and there are these clear differences between those passages. Okay, my last uh, rebuttal period, 10 minutes left, I want to focus on one one particular uh, argument, and that is responding to, well, Matthew 24, 31. Uh, Yeah, there's definitely... uh, 
similar language, no question about that. Matthew 21, 31, 24, 31, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Uh, and, and actually, just before Matthew 24, at the end of uh, Matthew 23, uh, there's a promise that uh, there's going to be a remnant of Jews who are going to be uh, saved. And, yeah, I do believe that it, there will be a, a remnant of Jews who are going to be regathered uh, at the end of the seven-year period. But I do not believe that Matthew 24, 31 is describing that event. And I want to give you uh, a few reasons, as many reasons as my time allows here, to sh- explain why I believe that Matthew 24, 31 is referring to the rapture of of uh, the church, or rapture of uh, all God's people. And that is, uh, well, reason number one, a cause, there's a cause and effect action in the sky. It's not happening on the earth. When Jesus regathers his people, it's going to be on the earth. But there's a, there's a gathering happen, happen, a cause and effect in the sky. And, and we need to look at verse 30 to see a little bit more information. Because it says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So he's, on the, he's arriving on the clouds. Okay? And then, here's the cause and effect. Don't miss the effect here. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So notice the focus in verse 30 is that Jesus, the Son of Man, is in the sky, he's on the clouds, and he's in, uh, in heaven, or the clouds of heaven, that is. In other words, he is not on earth. This may seem, seem self-evident, but the obvious point is meaningful in light of the gathering of the elect issue. Because we're told that his, his angels gather his elect from one end of the heaven to the sky, uh, the sky to the other. So the, the cause and effect action, I believe, is clear. When Jesus arrives on the clouds in the sky, he will command his angels to gather his elect. And I, I just believe that the most natural purpose of the gathering of the elect to Jesus is, for, is, is to the sky for the rapture. And there's nothing here to suggest that the elect are gathered to a location on earth at this point in the narrative, that is. So Jesus intends for us to focus on the action happening in the sky, not on the earth. And what other gathering action do we know happens in the sky? The rapture, as depicted by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And this leads me to the next reason, and that is uh, Paul's rapture teaching parallels Jesus' teaching of the gathering of the elect. In my book, The Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, I have a chart in the appendix. There's 30 parallels between the Olive Discourse, Jesus' teaching, and Paul's teaching in Thessalonians. And why are 30 parallels? It's not a lot of people will say, yeah, there's some, there's some similarities between Paul's teaching and, and Jesus' teaching. No, there's not more than, or there's, or there's not just a few parallels. There's a lot of parallels, 30 of them. It's not a coincidence. I believe that the tradition of the Olive Discourse was handed down, right, to the, to the disciples, and of course it was relayed to the Apostle Paul, which is interesting because at the beginning of Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says that he received this uh, uh, as a, a word from the Lord. And I don't believe this is, is a revelation. I do believe that is, it is the Olive Discourse tradition that he received. And so, <clears throat> so in the first reason we saw a cause and effect action in the sky, here I believe that the Apostle Paul will fill in more detail about the gathering picture as we compare Jesus' account to it, uh, or account to his. So, notice the, as I mentioned, the, there's glorious sky language, and in Paul's um, passage as well, and there's nine parallels that can be discerned. I mentioned 30, but I want to focus on nine between the two accounts. The initiation of the parousia, it's not two different stages of a parousia, they're focused on the inception part of the parousia. We know that this, uh, in Matthew 24, the sign uh, precedes the parousia. Paul talks about the beginning of the parousia with the resurrection and rapture. Uh, his presence is perceived. Uh, other parallels is God's people survive up to his return. Jesus with the clouds, power and great glory, accompanied with angelic presence, announced with the trumpet call, the gathering of God's people, meeting Jesus in the clouds. Uh, so Paul's parallel language should not be surprising again because he's drawing from the Olive Discourse. And... <clears throat> 
With a few, a few more minutes left, I want to mention that, that Jesus draws from, in Matthew 24, he draws from one of the most explicit resurrection passages in the Old Testament, and that is Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And I believe that's important for our context because, again, there's parallels here between uh, Daniel 11, 36, and 12 through 3. For example, there is the abomination of desolation. Daniel 11, 36, Matthew 24, 15. You have the, the next event, the great tribulation. Daniel says there will be a time of distress unlike any other from the nations beginning up to that time. Jesus has the same, the next event uh, in the Olive Discourse for the there will be great suffering, unlike anything that has happened from the beginning of the world until now. Uh, and then you have the, the rescue of the elect remaining, both in Daniel's account and the Olive Discourse. Then you have, I believe, the resurrection. Uh, and, of course, you have the resurrection passage in Daniel, and then you have the gathering event in the very next event in the Olive Discourse, which can be none other than the resurrection, the gathering, or at least the, uh, the result of the gathering. Uh, and in my just my final minute here, I just want to mention also I mentioned this in my opening re, uh, remarks, and that is that the elect they're they're gathered at the end of the when the great tribulation is cut short, Matthew twenty four, and and the great multitude in Matthew or in uh, Revelation seven, the innumerable multitude who appear in heaven just before the day of the Lord's wrath. They appear in white robes, I believe, symbolizing the resurrection. I believe this is the rapture of all of God's people. And it's said in Revelation 7, it's said that they have come out of the great tribulation. I do not believe that is a coincidence. I believe that is the rapture. Uh, and I, I believe that these reasons, there's more. I don't have time, but there are more reasons. I believe that Matthew 24, verse 31, the reference to the gathering is the rapture of God's people. First of all, I believe the white robes in Revelation represent righteousness, not the resurrection. You see that clearly uh, in Revelation 19. These are the righteous deeds of the saints. So it just means that they're righteous, or it doesn't necessarily mean they're resurrected at that point. They, and I think many of them are, or most of they are. But uh, if the rapture occurs about a year or so uh, between his two-phased coming then there is not much time for the earth to be repopulated with believers again. And uh, you have clearly the uh, multitudes from every tribe, kindred, tongue, or nation, Revelation 7, numbers too great to be numbered. Later in Revelation 9, Paul talks about, uh, John, Jesus talks about a 200 million man army. So I take it that the multitude too great to be numbered is in the hundreds of millions. And yet that's in the first half of the 70th week of Daniel. And uh, it appears that not many people are going to get saved in that last period of time. I don't want to characterize it because they get upset if you mischaracter, you know, if it's a year or year and a half, a year and a quarter or whatever. Uh, so, you know, th that's a real problem. Um, why not... Our Lord say, refer, why does it have to refer to the upper room discourse? As I said, why can't it refer to, I'm sorry, why does it have to refer to the Olivet discourse? Christ's upper room discourse is just as much of a discourse. Plus, you have the fact that uh, you have the parallel in John 14 with 1 Thessalonians 4 that I pointed out in the flow of the thought. And that makes better sense. And I don't see why it can't also, uh, rather be a result of his visit to heaven as well, because he talked to the Lord face to face there. And we know that he got uh, from Galatians where he says that. Uh, Parousia is only used three times in Matthew's gospel. In Mark and Luke, it's never used. In fact, the word erkomai, I would challenge an English reader to go through Matthew 24 and tell me when erkomai, which is the other term for coming, is used and when parousia is used. And exactly exact parallel passages like in Mark and Luke, where Matthew uses parousia, Mark uses erkomai. So 
I think Alan's kind of making it into a semi-technical type term there uh, to refer to that event. But, you know, it, it's just a, these are general terms that are used depending on the context. Uh, once again, I, I agree with all these parallels that he's making between the passages, but he doesn't prove anything as a result. He's just stating all these parallels, but he doesn't have a gotcha point where that proves anything. Because within my understanding of Scripture, uh, I can absorb those into the second coming because I believe from the context uh, that these are referring to the second coming because of all the connections to the Old Testament. Notice you don't have any Old Testament direct references in rapture passages, by the way. You have all of the, all of the, this stuff relating to the judgment stuff from the Old Testament. In fact, I believe the book of Revelation was Paul, Paul, John was told to write what he sees twice. And that's why 39 times he says, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. About 15 times he says, I heard, and he dictates. So the book of Revelation is John giving a verbal description of visions. And John was so full of the Old Testament, I think, that he used phrases and words from the Old Testament prophets. And the book of Revelation provides a chronological framework to um, organize many of these passages from the Old Testament that are scattered throughout. And you have the abomination of desolation in the middle of the book of Revelation after the seal and trumpet judgments. And we know from Daniel 9 that that occurs in the midpoint. And so it makes better sense just from the chronological framework. And by the way, it also has pauses to deal with issues topically, you know, like uh, Israel in, in Revelation chapter 12 and stuff like that or the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13. But by and large, there's a progressive development from chapters 4 through 19, with in the middle, chapter 11, is the abomination of desolation, rather the temple and and Jesus tells them to flee. You have the same pattern there. And so that makes sense, or, or that would not support his view of pre-wrath if the book of Revelation is chronological in the way that I, that I just said. Uh, by the way, the term elect is used of Jews twice, or a cognate of it is used twice in Romans 11. And further, in Matthew 24, 31, and he will send his angels, gather his elect from the four winds from one end to the other. By the way, the term elect is used twice earlier, one to about uh, lest the elect be deceived, and what's the other reference? Um, does anybody remember? Well, it's used three times and what? But yeah, for the sake, that's right. For the sake of the elect, they're going to be saved. And I think all three references are reference to Jewish believers because that's the whole point. And it's used specifically of Jews, even non-Christian Jews, in Romans 11, the cognate form of it. Is, And you also have in Matthew 24, 31, the passage of Deuteronomy 30, verse 4 or 5, I forget which one, where it talks about uh, the prophecy of he's going to scatter the Jews around the, the world and then he's going to gather them back. And as my friend Arnold Fruchtenbaum likes to say, today the Jews go back to Israel on LL Airlines. At the second coming, they're going to be gathered by angels. And they don't have to have frequent flyer miles or anything to do that on. And so this is in order to bring the Jews back, who by this time all the non-believing Jews will be purged out, Ezekiel chapter 20 and 22, so that all Israel will be saved, which is said to be another mystery. And therefore, they, uh, that's what Paul's arguing in Romans 10, where he says, How shall they, whoever believes on the name of the Lord to be saved, quote from Joel, how shall they call on him in whom they haven't believed? Well, see, this is what the tribulation is, is all about, at least in this aspect, and that is to purge out the non-elect so that all that are left by the time you get to the end are believing Jews, and they believe and call, and he rescues them. And... Even throughout the millennium, all Jewish 
mortals will be saved. He makes it up to them at that time. Now, the purpose for the tribulation, according to Revelation 3.10, is to test the earth dwellers. And that term earth dwellers comes out of Isaiah 24. It's used in the prophets, and it's even used in Luke. It's used 11 times in the book of Revelation. And it's to vindicate that an unbeliever is an unbeliever is an unbeliever. And all 11 times that that's used, when you get to the last two times, it's, uh, it's only the earth dwellers that take the mark of the beast, and it's only the earth dwellers, uh, it says, whose names were not found written in the book of life. And the tribulation is to vindicate Gentile unbelief among the earth dwellers, and that's what it says, to test the earth dwellers, to test them to vindicate the qualities that they have. And that's why he's putting them through these series of tests and you have these evaluations. And uh, that's why I think, as Robert Thomas argued in his uh, commentary on Revelation, whenever you have that type of construction uh, where you have come, 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 and then you have a, a summary statement of it later on in a passage, it always has to refer to what preceded, not what comes back. His view is they believe it's proleptic. In other words, these judgments are about to happen. But instead, grammarians believe that it, because of the uh, linguistic usage there of those passages, that it refers to uh, what has preceded there, them. And it's a summary statement of that. So that connects that to uh, the wrath of God. Thank you.